What does it mean to have unshakable inner peace? Find out in this episode of Inner Spartan Unleashed. Welcome to Inner Spartan Unleashed. This is a gut check. The weekly podcast from your host, the CEO of Inner Spartan, Renee Rodriguez. This is the opportunity you've waited your whole life for, the chance to become the hero of your own story. Each week, you will receive expert tips from leaders in business, health, fitness, and relationships. Our mission is to get you unstuck and living your best life. Get ready to Spartan up. Victor is a lifelong martial artist, entrepreneur, international speaker, coach, philosopher, and husband. Victor's professional coaching journey blossomed while working for the largest coaching platform in the world, the Tony Robbins Organization. Within his first two years, he quickly rose to be ranked the number one coach in the company out of 120 coaches based on client feedback. He was known as the turnaround expert. Victor believes our greatness, creativity, and excellence comes from channeling the pain from our past into a purpose that serves the common good. For Victor, his greatest pain was the death of his mother when he was just seven years old. Despite the darkness of this devastating experience, it called him to his purpose and gave him the spark to illuminate the path for himself and others. He is here to teach Zen Stoic philosophy, a hybrid of Zen Buddhism and Stoicism that he pioneered and modified for a modern age. As the founder of Zen Stoic, he offers clarity, mindfulness, and insight on how to best navigate the unique personalities of his students. Victor and I met through a mutual friend named Adam Lyons, and Victor and I have been establishing a personal and professional relationship. Victor, welcome to Inner Spartan Unleashed. Renee, thanks so much for having me, man. This is awesome. Given that the current COVID crisis is at its midpoint in the States, and there is the potential for a second wave this year, how has this affected your business and what challenges as a business owner are you facing? So this is an interesting question because I think it, it affects everybody's business differently depending on what business you're in. Now, some businesses in this period of time might be thriving, right? They may be the business that is either an essential service or a service that people really desire in these moments. I know for sure, at least for me, one of my greatest passions is fitness. And I'm trying to buy fitness equipment right now. And a lot of it is sold out, especially like the adjustable weights from Bowflex and whatnot. Yeah. So when I think about which business you're in, it's really, are you a business that is able to serve in this moment or are you not? And for my business, at least with Zen Stoic, one thing that I really help people to get in terms of if we were to put a blanket overall result of what I, I'm able to provide my students and clients is this sense of unshakable inner peace, inner peace, no matter what situation you're in, uh, even when the shit hits the fan, like kind of like, like we're in now with COVID and being able to find that inner peace at, at a at any moment's notice. And that's essentially what I do. So my business at least has been actually growing during this time, ironically, not because I'm out there just trying to push it necessarily, but there's a lot of people, uh, past students and people who listen to my podcast, as well as engage in my videos who are coming now for help or wanting to learn how to master their emotions, wanting to learn how to be as productive as possible uh, during this pandemic when there are so many limitations that have been imposed upon our lives that frankly are just outside of our control. So that's the way it's at least affected my business. And what I've really been focusing on is how can I help? How can I deliver this result of unshakable inner peace 
to my students, to new audience members, to new clients who are coming into my business. So I'd say that's the way this pandemic has affected my business thus far. Yeah, it's interesting. And I I agreed with everything you said. And, you know, it's funny because both of our businesses to a large extent are seeded from ancient wisdom and philosophical practices or or frameworks. Mm -hmm. How do you approach, because, you know, you talked about helping your clients on the meta level, what you're doing is helping them achieve inner peace. You know, I might say that a little bit differently in terms of the vernacular within inner Spartan, where we talk a lot about resiliency, right? Mm. How do you first approach that when a client comes to you and they say, you know, I'm scared and I'm uncertain. I don't know what's going to happen with my business. What are the things that they're coming to you saying? And then how is it that you diagnose where it is that you need to start your work with them? Because one of the things that I've heard about you and just through our conversations, you're really good at getting down to the core of the issue quickly, Mm -hmm. which is important in any coach because, you know, there's a difference between what folks like you and I do and, for example, traditional talk therapy. That's not what we're here to do. We're here to move people into action today. Well, we might help them uncover some of the past traumas that might be holding them back. This isn't therapy. This is about helping people move into action today. So where do you start? Yeah, definitely. Um, So on the first point, I do think it's very interesting that you and I both base what we do on ancient philosophy. At least for me, I don't know if you feel the same way about this, but I look at what has been working for thousands of years for human beings to improve their lives. And let me base it off that instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. So I take these two philosophies of Zen and Stoicism, put them together very much like how you're taking a Spartan mentality and bringing in that resilience in people, which I think is fascinating. And at least the way that I approach it first is if we look at something, a philosophy like Stoicism, and for those of you who don't know what Stoicism is, Stoicism is an an ancient Greek philosophy that was popularized in ancient Rome and had a few prominent philosophers as part of the philosophy. And essentially what it focuses on is rationality, perspective, and logic and living a life of virtue that is not just good for yourself, but good for those around you. So this includes things like being able to control your emotions and not allow them to control you, being able to be free from impulse, being able to be driven not by selfish desires, but desires that also serve a civic duty with the understanding that human beings are social animals and we work best when we cooperate. So if we go towards our nature of not just being self-serving, but serving those around you, we are able to operate at our best. So that's essentially what stoicism brings to the table. And there's a really important lesson from stoicism that I use, especially when it comes to a situation like this. Somebody comes to me and they're saying, hey, I'm scared. I have anxiety. I'm not sure what's going to happen. And I actually created something that I call taking inventory of your assets. And this is usually the very first thing that I'll do with somebody. And taking inventory of your assets is essentially this. It is three questions. And the first one starts with, number one, what can I control? Because stoicism is highly focused on putting your attention on the controllable and letting go of and embracing the uncontrollable. So the first question, what can I control in this moment? If you ask a question like, what can I control in this moment? Your mind will start going to the things that you actually hold on versus the things that you do not. Most people have fear and anxiety because they are obsessed with the uncontrollable and not just one uncontrollable thing, but possibly every different area of being uncontrollable. Yeah. Every permutation of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, my job, my relationship, my health, society, these things, these high level things that I cannot control and have zero influence over. That's where a lot of people's heads are when it comes to this idea of fear and anxiety during a time like this. And then I bring in the Zen side of that in understanding that 
when we think about Zen, one thing that I really like from the philosopher Alan Watts, something that he said is that every time you have a new thought, each thought that you have is like a unit of measurement for thought. Mm -hmm. And the more and more we fragment them and the more and more we come away from a, a oneness of direction, like for instance, the overarching theme of what can I control? And we start chopping that up. We, we start to become uncertain. And that uncertainty gets divided by all the little thoughts. So it's almost like opening a thousand tabs in your mind each time you start focusing on a new uncontrollable thing and leave that one open. So that's the first question. What can I control? Very simple, very applicable, very practical for anybody. And what you'll find is that what you can control is usually a lot shorter list than what you want it to be because yeah. <laughs> it's, it's mainly just your perception, words, and actions. Yeah. But those three things have so much power to impact a, a change or, or a new sense of direction towards a better future. The second question is, what resources do I have? Many people are focused on the resources that they do not have in this moment. What What's missing? And if you focus on what's missing, I kind of look at it like you live in Las Vegas, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of card games being played in the, in the casinos and whatnot. Probably not right now, but... <laughs> uh, yeah, not now. Not now, but, but overall, like if you think about the metaphor of playing cards, like playing poker, for instance, mm -hmm. you are not going to play the game any better by focusing on the cards that you don't have. Right. You are not going to play the game any better by wishing that you had the hand of cards that your neighbor does. Right. The only thing that's going to allow you to play the game better is to use the cards you currently have to the best of your ability. Hopefully you'll pick up a new card, a better card, but if you don't, that's still not the focus. The focus is what do I have now? How can I use it? Yeah. And that's what that question is all about. What resources do I have? And the third question is, what are my strengths? So many people have been taught to downplay their strengths and to focus upon their weaknesses. And when you're focusing on your weaknesses, like your vices, your laziness, your lack of focus on a particular topic, it doesn't allow you to operate at your best. There have been studies that, that, that have been done where essentially a human being has a 31% increase, up to a 31% increase in their intelligence capacity by being in a positive frame of mind. When we go into our strengths, we're able to be in a more positive frame of mind. This doesn't mean false positivity and lying to yourself, but this does mean focus on what you do have. What are your strengths? What can you build on? Because we can't build on failure, fear, and struggle, but we can build on progress. We can build on strength. We can build on these things that we do have, the resources we have and the elements that we can control. So the very first thing that I'd say to anybody is take inventory of your assets, ask yourself those three questions, and it puts you into a much better frame of mind to deal with the fear, uncertainty, and anxiety that might come up during this time. I wanted to circle back really quick to the question of Stoics. So who are some of your favorite Stoics? Are you a, a Marcus Aurelius or a, a Seneca guy? Who is it that you like the most? I mean, obviously, you know, the three main proponents of Stoicism are Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and Seneca. For me, I've gotten something out of listening and reading to all of them mm -hmm. or viewing content, if you will, yeah. on, on every single one of them. I would say that I gravitate most towards Marcus Aurelius, yeah. Epictetus, then Seneca yeah. is my like order. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the order I would have chosen as well. Yeah. 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 yeah I, uh, I particularly like Marcus Aurelius because this is a guy who had literally everything at his fingertips, right? He was the most powerful man in the world. And it would have been very easy and very tempting to abuse that power. Yet he kept his journal 
that ended up turning into a book, which was not his intention. <laughs> but he kept this journal for himself to reflect upon himself, to reflect upon his own behaviors, to really you know put his thoughts out there and hold himself accountable. And it turned into this great, you know, literary work that we we get to enjoy today, two thousand years later. And for a man in that level of power to see himself as just a man and not a god necessarily. I believe is incredibly inspiring because at least for me as a kid, like I grew up pretty spoiled, I would say. Like I came from a, a family of means, but it wasn't just a family of means where money wasn't a problem. And, and I take this uh, this particular quote from Mark Manson, but I came from a family that used money to avoid problems. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Now this was obviously in their best intentions, but you had mentioned in my bio when my mom passed away, a devastating time like that, my family only having the way of dealing with problems that they're used to, which is, okay, let's just throw money at it. Mm -hmm. That turned into spoiling me, buying me toys as a kid, all these things. And when you have everything at your fingertips, the temptations and the lack of self-discipline when it comes to instant gratification is pretty high. And I didn't even realize these things until I started studying stoicism and Zen and, and looking at minimalism and what you actually need to make you happy. And the interesting thing about it is I really identify with Marcus Aurelius, not because I'm a Roman emperor, but, but I've been <laughs> tempted with having whatever it is that I want. And, and for me, the, the fact that somebody even at that level, which obviously far exceeded what I've ever experienced, was able to do that. I was like, I can do that too. I can, I can humble myself. I can start to remove my ego from these things. And it ended up becoming a philosophy that I carry around in my life. I even have a, a tattoo here on, on my ribs that says the things you own do not define who you are, because I believe that the only thing that defines who you are is who you choose to be right now in this present moment. And from that point, you're able to reshape the meaning of your past. You're able to reshape the direction that you might be going in the future. So I would say that's one of the big reasons that Marcus Aurelius inspires me. Yeah, that's amazing. Let's assume for a moment that you're sitting at your favorite restaurant, you're sitting next to the fire pit there, and Marcus Aurelius, you know, somehow magically appears at the table across from you guys are breaking bread, maybe drinking a little wine. Mm -hmm. What would you ask him? That's a good one. I've not, not actually thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you asked. If I got to ask Marcus Aurelius a question, I think one of the things that I'd ask him most is what he believes a human being is capable under times of stress. And one of the reasons why I'd ask him that is because for someone like that, who has that level of influence over the amount of people that he did, mm -hmm. I'd like to know what exactly would he be trying to inspire in a mass of people who are living in fear and anxiety yeah, interesting. and uncertainty. What is that thing that we all share? What is our capacity to be able to rise above in a situation like that? And how would he inspire that in people? Because that's essentially the message that I would take back. If I could have Marcus Aurelius on my podcast, I'd be asking him to talk about that exclusively. <laughs> yeah. And as a faithful student of his, what do you imagine his response would be? I imagine his response would be that the strength that we all have in times of adversity is the ability to come together and cooperate. Yeah. Even if we can't physically be near each other because there's a virus, we can all do our part individually. We can all take responsibility for our individual part and not simply think about our own convenience, but think about the health, safety, and prosperity of everyone around us yeah. in the actions that we take. Yeah, that's great. I, I want to actually touch on that 
because I think there's an underlying issue there or, you know, sort of contemporary problem that I think is difficult for us to do just what you said. You know, I remember back when 1992, I think it was, I moved to Florida for four years and I closed on a new home three weeks before Hurricane Andrew and destroyed it. And I remember how the community came together to help each other and Mm -hmm. to build that city back up. When 9-11 hit, I remember the next day, I believe it was Le Mans, their headline was, today we're all American. I remember how people came together at that time. And I think that there's a lot of that going on now as well. I don't want to suggest that there's not. But at least in my lifetime, I don't ever recall living in an environment that has become as divisive as it is today. Mm-hmm. I think that without getting, at least for me, I don't talk a lot about, I don't talk at all really about politics or sort of really deeply personal, spiritual or religious mm-hmm. topics in my public sphere. Well, just for reasons that I think that they're unnecessarily divisive. Too many people have this sort of fear and hatred of the other. Like if you don't think like them, if you don't believe as they do, then you know you must be the enemy. Oh yeah. For sure. Yeah, we we definitely have a divisive climate at this point in time. And that's because, at least in my eyes, there's been, and again, this is whatever side of the issue that you're on, this is true on both. So it's not that this goes to one or the other, but both sides in their own way have glorified the demonization of the other. Yeah, agreed. And that's the problem. Depending on what side of the coin you're on, you might think, well, no, the problem is that they believe and say this or vice versa. But the reality is the actual problem. Those things are all symptoms. The way that people act, they're symptoms of the problem. But the real problem is the demonization of others. Thinking to yourself that somehow your intention and their intention are two different things. What people argue over is the vehicle for carrying out an intention not necessarily the intention itself. And when we demonize each other, we are in a extreme form of judgment of the other side to the point where we're removing the humanity from anybody who has a belief of that narrative or that ideology that's outside of our ethos. And one thing that I always talk about with my clients is that to recognize the difference between the symptom and the actual problem. And not just that, but to understand that behind every behavior, behind every belief, behind every habit that one person has, there is a positive intention or a self-serving intention of some sort that is not in a bad place. And we often fail to realize what the intention is and have a a real conversation and communication to both meet the intention in in a way that serves the greater good. Now, the thing is, when you demonize somebody, you create a, like I was saying before, an extreme sense of judgment. Judgment stagnates the mind, holds it in place. It doesn't allow the mind to move. It doesn't allow the heart to move. I mean, literally your heart will still beat, but it might be faster because you build up some anxiety or whatever. But the point is, is that judgment stagnates, whereas appreciation creates progress and movement. If we're able to appreciate, if somebody feels heard, they are much more likely to hear your point out and vice versa. And it's not to say, well, I'll wait until they hear me out because that's not taking responsibility of yourself. If you take responsibility of yourself first and you say, I'm going to do my part, I'm going to stay in my lane here. My only job here, like Marcus Aurelius would say, is to be a good human being. That's it. And if you just be a good human being, what you'll notice is that people will start being better human beings to you. I'm not saying they're going to be amazing, 
But the way that we treat others, the emotions that we carry within ourselves when we communicate with another person does inspire their level of communication. And so, for instance, there's a type of session that I do that's an intensive session. It's like an eight-hour power day. And when we go through this, we deal with a person's external conflicts. And it has nothing to do with actually speaking to the person that they're in conflict with. Like we don't call them yeah. <laughs> like at some of these seminars that you'd see, like call that person now and tell them, tell them that you love them. Like yeah. I don't do any of that. But, <laughs> but essentially when you understand how to deal with somebody's perception of an external person and you deal with that dynamic that they're having, that changes the, the relationship in such a way. It's, it's absolutely amazing because what we do is we don't argue with actual people. We argue with our idea and perception of this person. And as long as we hold that, we continue to treat them as that thing. When that image changes or goes away and we're able to be at peace with it, the way that we communicate and the emotions that we express and interchange with this person in communication are not the same emotions anymore. They're not emotions of malice, but rather they might be emotions of compassion. I did this particular type of session with my wife, who at the time was my girlfriend. She was very curious about the work that I did in the beginning of our relationship. And she had always had a rough relationship with her mom, like for her entire life. Mm -hmm. She would get annoyed when the phone would ring or a text message would come in from her mom. After that session, after she resolved the inner conflict she had with her mom, now they're like this. They're like best friends. Yeah. Right? Like they like spending time together. They like hanging out. They like talking on the phone. And this was never a thing in the 30 years that she's been alive. So it's really amazing what can happen when you simply understand that you control the perception and your perception of the judgment of someone else is not fixed. And it is something that we've created or that we've adopted and that can change. So as a very long-winded response to that question, ending the demonization of one another and starting to appreciate one another and coming together to align with our human nature, which is to be a social animal and cooperate. Yeah, and sort of tangentially speaking and based on what you were talking about in terms of, for example, the experience with your wife and her mom, do you buy into the notion that oftentimes when we are repelled or upset by something that we see in someone else, it's often because they're mirroring back qualities or character flaws real or perceived that we see in ourselves. Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. That's uh, Carl Jung. Yeah, exactly. Who said that. And I love that. And that's actually been a very powerful principle that I've used in coaching sessions to help resolve some of those external conflicts to help someone see themselves in another. Cause as long as we're seeing the other as separate for going into more of a Zen perspective, Mm -hmm. that's where we'll create these illusions and these attachments to our own judgments that will ultimately create suffering. Can you tell us a little bit about the steps or the outcomes or the experience that someone may have? Because you you talked about this eight hour session that you do with folks. Mm -hmm. Maybe focusing on that, like how do they do that with you? First of all, Mm -hmm. what can they expect in terms of experience and outcomes for themselves? Yes. So during that eight hour power day, or intensive session, as I like to call it, there are a variety of things that take place. The main things that we do is we resolve the negative or unpleasant emotions that a person may be experiencing. And we really tackle some big ones there that stay with you for life if you do not address the root cause of why they've come to pass. The other thing too, is we go through internal conflicts, this idea of, well, part of me wants this, but part of me wants that. And then external conflicts. And those I would say are the three big pillars of what we go through with a person. 
And the interesting thing is, it goes back to this idea of, as a human being, we only take in 120 bits of information per second, but we get bombarded with about 20 million in the year of 2020. And being bombarded with that much information, how do you select what you're actually paying attention to? You select what you're actually paying attention to based on your values, your beliefs, your perceptions, your emotions that you carry around and go to more often than others. Those all create the filter and determine what you're actually going to notice in the world. And so while we can't change the external reality all the time, like we can take actions and influence it, but we can't fully control the external world. While we can't do that, what we can do is we can change the perception. And so in a session like that, we start to address like in Buddhism, there are no positive or negative emotions. There are just emotions. They may be pleasant or unpleasant, but they're not good or bad necessarily. So the way that I teach it from a Zen story perspective is you have emotions. Some feel good, some don't. Your unpleasant emotions are giving you a particular message and your pleasant emotions are giving you a particular message. The message behind them or the way that we can look at emotions that every emotion is a call to action or a message of some kind. If it's unpleasant, what it's saying is that my perception of reality and reality don't match. Now, whatever belief I put on top of that feeling, however I label that feeling with my words is going to determine the specific emotion that I end up feeling. So if, for instance, I label an unpleasant emotion with some definition of injustice, like something's not fair, I will get a varying degree of anger, mm. either very mild, like irritated or annoyed, all the way to pissed off and you know, edging on violence. If it's something around loss, you'll get some variation of sadness to that unpleasant feeling. If it's something where you feel like you did something wrong, it will be some form of guilt. And so the way that we actually define these feelings is going to dictate what specific emotion that that's going to be. And then obviously the intensity of your definition is going to determine where on the scale that falls. Yeah. A pleasant emotion is simply giving you the message that what, you're, what you believe in your perception and how reality is match. And the message is either keep doing this or do more of it over and over again. Yeah. Whereas the unpleasant is stop doing this, do something different, change your perception. Those are the messages you're normally getting. But most people have learned to push their emotions away and demonize the unpleasant emotions, never hearing their message. And what you resist will persist. That's right. And so it'll keep coming back, yelling at you, yeah. <laughs> trying to get any way that it can. Yeah, that's right. But we're taught to push them away. Yeah. And so in that session, especially men. Absolutely. Especially yeah. men. Yeah. yeah. The, the whole narrative that men carry is that you shouldn't feel, you should mm. push these emotions away. And so in that intensive session, a person will discover how to actually listen to those emotions and get rid of the root cause of the major unpleasant emotions. They may be feeling like anger, sadness, fear, guilt, those sort of things. So getting to the root cause, it's not a logical process. Like we can't talk through it. Like you were mentioning talk therapy before. We cannot get to the root cause of something with talk therapy. Mm -hmm. So from a Zen perspective, the way that Zen is defined is anytime you try to define Zen, you end up diluting its meaning. And many people don't like that answer because they think it's like, you're, oh, you're trying to be overly mystical. You're avoiding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that at all. It's more like Zen is meant to be a direct experience of the present moment of a total oneness between mind and body. Mm -hmm. That's it. There's nothing really more to it than that, you know, to put it simply. 
when it comes to actually addressing your emotions, if you don't have a direct experience with your emotions and you try to talk through them and logic through them, you will filter the message as a form of resistance because it's so hardwired into us to avoid that. And so what I do in that session is I create a space and environment where somebody can actually hear the message of that emotion, learn the lessons that they need and remove the emotion or at least it's hold on them entirely. It's not to say you're never going to feel anger again. It's that anger won't have a hold on you in the same way that it may have throughout all your life. Yeah. And is that session typically held in a group environment or one-on-one? I assume it's one-on-one, but I just want to confirm. One-on-one. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And so given the current environment that we're in, we're all practicing social distancing. How has this environment impacted your ability to execute that program? Are you doing it virtually or do you still have clients where you're just staying six feet apart from them? No, no. I mean, we're doing it virtually. It does require some kind of face-to-face interaction, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't have to be in person. It's more so for me as a facilitator of that session, I need to just be able to see a person's body language Mm -hmm. and be able to look at their eyes, their face, like the way that they're breathing. Because a lot of these pieces of body language will give me indications of either something's going well or it's not. Even if they're saying, yes, it is, or no, it's not, I can see if their nervous system is fighting the process or if it's aligned and going with it. So I do need a face-to-face interaction, but it does not have to be in person. So I have done virtual as well with this, although it's not ideal, I do virtual. What are some of the steps you've taken to mitigate economic risks during this time? And if you believe as I do, that if you were trying to prepare for this moment now, you're already too late. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't take steps to mitigate any potential downsides. And you should absolutely be focusing on thriving through this time and preparing for any future challenges that may arise. What are some of those steps you've taken? I mean, the mentality that I carry with this in order to mitigate some of those risks is best described in this Japanese proverb. And this is essentially the whole belief behind how I live personally and also the message behind Zen Stoic. And it's a short story, but the story goes like this. There is a Japanese samurai student and his master, and they're talking one day, and the student says to his master, Master, you teach me all these things about fighting in battle and being a warrior and being unattached to life or death so so that I can be successful in battle. Yet at the same time, you teach me to live a life of peace and tranquility. How do you reconcile the two? Wouldn't it be better if I just sat here in the garden and tended to the plants? Wouldn't that be more peaceful? And the master just responds to him and says, yes, it would be, but it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. Hmm. That's great. And when I heard that, I mean, it, it hit me in such a way because I realized that that's how I've been living my entire life. Like when my mom passed away, I made a decision that I'd never be emotionally or mentally unprepared for a situation like that again. So when my dad recently was diagnosed with melanoma, I felt a moment of fear but I was able to shift back into a perspective of let's solve this. And as of right now, he's doing quite well with that, right? He's you know, getting a lot healthier, which I'm happy about, but it's that mentality of being the warrior in the garden. Yeah. That's where the unshakable inner peace comes from. It is. So for me, from a business perspective to mitigate economic risks, at least what I'm looking at is when I'm creating something, I am creating it under that principle of being the warrior in the garden. And what I mean by that is I'm not just responding to the problems that somebody has now during the pandemic, but how does this product or idea of whatever it is that I'm selling or creating, how does this also serve people post pandemic? How does it continue to serve them if there's another pandemic? 
it's creating the products in that way is part of how I'm making sure that it's always relevant for somebody and that this is a timeless lesson or timeless life skill that somebody can take with them forever and, and be able to help. On top of that, it's also making sure that when I am making money and when I am bringing in revenue, that I'm not just spending it on the latest and greatest things, right? I operate from a place of, I know what's best for my business and I know what's essential. And so I'm not going to put myself in a place of wanting to grow as fast as I can, because it's one of the reasons why I went into the route of philosophy versus staying in the personal development self-help world. The personal development self-help world has this dynamic to it that many people follow where goals and ambitions are essentially, it's the highest value. It's what guides all things. And so in that world, you could call it like the God value or like the paramount value is the goals and ambitions. It's like, I'm striving for my goals. I have this growth mindset. I'm always going after the mountaintop, this, that, and the other thing. And that's great. The problem is when that's seen as the paramount value of whatever it is that you're doing, what you're doing is without realizing it, you're self-validating through your goals and ambitions. And that leads you to the whole road of, okay, I got this one. What's next? And feeling empty until you get to the what's next yeah. and so on and so forth. And the bigger your ambitions become, the bigger the void once you accomplish them. So there's like this bitter sweetness that people experience. The purpose of goals are not for validation. They're for direction. Yeah. And so one of the reasons why I say this is not being obsessed with explosive growth in my business during this time. Because that ambition, that desire to grow quickly and hurry the process along puts me in a very vulnerable position to where I might be more susceptible to buy something that I don't need because I'm doing it in the name of making my business explode. Now, not everybody is going to agree with this, but the way I look at it is in Buddhism, there's something called the Noble Eightfold Path. And number six on that is what is called right effort. And it is putting forth an amount of effort that is sustainable through your lifetime. Not so much that you're going to get burnt out in three months, not so much that you're going to kind of throw your hands up in the air the next time you hit a milestone and go, is this all there is? But one in which that you can do what you do every single day. So if the goals serve as the milestone, if the goals serve as the point of direction on your map or on your path, as I like to say, then the real juice in that, the real fulfillment in that is falling in love with the process, falling in love with walking your path and having a direct experience because our goals happen in spikes, right? Every few weeks, every few months, every few years, depending on the nature of the goal. But what does happen every single day is the process. So if we're fixated and obsessed with the goal and we never think about the process, this is what can lead us to making dumb financial decisions and buy things you don't need, yeah. buy things in the name of this explosive growth that might not actually serve the greater good of you and your business. Yeah. And so this is the mentality that I take on the warrior in the garden and also falling in love with the process and putting right effort in my path. All that's great stuff. Have you sought out mentors in the past or do you currently have mentors and what role has mentorship played in your life? And not just as a mentee, but potentially as a mentor as well. Yes. Well, yeah, I definitely, I've gone to mentors before. I do have a mentor currently. For me, I got really interested in this topic when I was young, not specifically Zen and Stoicism, but in coaching and being able to help somebody control their emotions, control the stories that they might be telling themselves. And I was interested in this because I was always a victim 
of my circumstances, or at least I felt that way. And I couldn't control my thoughts, my emotions. They would bring me down a rabbit hole and I'd suffer and be self-conscious and insecure because of it. And this all started with the whole victim mentality of losing a parent as a young kid. So I was always obsessed with that. So I did seek out mentors when I did go to work for Tony Robbins. I mean, that was the first big organization or figure that I went for mentorship is through the coaches there, through the community there. And when I got hired, I was the youngest coach in the company for a while. I was 24 years old when I got hired. So I really, I dove into this thing head first and obviously being very green, very new, I would seek out mentors to learn as much as I possibly could from them because there are people in this life who have walked the path or at least a similar path to the one that you want to walk. And if you're able to hear from them and learn from them, that helps substantially. But I didn't just stop there in terms of getting my mentorship with the people in the Tony Robbins organization, which helped me substantially. But also I have a mentor or mutual friend that you mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. Adam Lyons. And Adam, he owns the company called Psychology Hacker. He's the CEO of that and asked the dating coach. And we've actually had Adam on the podcast already. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Now, Adam is my mentor currently. And one of the reasons why I really enjoy mentoring with Adam is because number one, he's very real, very honest with his students. He doesn't kind of, he doesn't make you have a big head or a big ego about things. He's just very matter of fact to the point. And the biggest thing that I learned from Adam is this idea of what has allowed me to create Zen Stoic, which is to stand on my own two feet and not depend on an organization, not depend on something outside of myself to be able to support myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, working for a big coaching corporation was amazing. And at the same time, I was dependent on this job. I didn't know how to make money by myself. (laughs) I had never done it before. And then through Adam's teachings, I was able to take my vision of Zen Stoic, of this philosophy that had helped me so much, and really put into practice, turn it into a business, turn it into a way of helping people, turn it into not just a business and a way of generating money, but a life calling. And this is something that he helped me figure out because when I first met him, I didn't have much of my own voice, if that makes any sense, right? I was more so an expert on everyone else's material (laughs) and regurgitating it. But it was through, you know, speaking with him and working with him for so many years that I was able to really get to this place of having my own voice, standing on my own two feet and being independent of having to crutch on other people or other entities. So mentorship is incredibly important for that reason. It's a person who's been there before and part of how you find your own voice, weirdly enough, is to fail at becoming the people that you idolize. And that's an idea that I got from the author, Austin Kleon, who wrote the book, Steal Like an Artist and Show Your Work and Keep Going. (laughs) Those are his three books out right now. But Austin Kleon was a big inspiration in that because he showed me that I didn't have to be my mentors. I didn't have to become Tony Robbins or become Adam Lyons. I had to become Victor. To become Victor, part of that process was to fail to become those two. And my third mentor, who's not really my mentor, I guess, uh, in my mind, he is Bruce Lee. Yeah. But to fail to become those three people is what allowed me to, to really like remove the layers and find my own voice. And you mentioned the book, I see like an artist. And, you know, the interesting thing about mentorship is that some people may feel like they're at a disadvantage if they don't have someone in their immediate network or they can't reach out or can't connect with someone like you or I for whatever reason. And so they feel, well, therefore I can't move ahead because I don't have the mentor and I think people should also recognize that we have millennia of mentorship written down in books where Mm -hmm. people who have succeeded at whatever it is interests you 
they've written about it already and you should use those as perhaps your first step towards mentorship. Yes. And yeah. not to get off on a tangent on how to find a mentor. I've recorded some content on this on the past, but I think that people should just really kind of engage if someone, for example, wanted to work with you, not in a professional sort of coaching capacity, but if, mm-hmm. if they hope to seek you out as a mentor, then they should search you out online, engage with your content, become valuable to you. And in that process, you get to know a little bit about them. Because if you're anything like me, I do have mentees. I have several mentees. For me, the decision to become a mentor to someone, which is something I don't obviously charge for. I'm not like a lot of people who sell these mentorship programs. And (laughs) I don't think that a mentorship is a product. It's an avocation. It's a duty or responsibility to those you choose to try to help. And my return on my investment is their success at whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish. So for me, I like to make sure that the people that I agree to mentor, that I know a little bit, that I can see what makes up their character because I want to make sure that my time isn't wasted on them. Mm-hmm. And that may sound a little bit harsh, but that's the reality is I want to make sure that if I'm going to spend time with somebody that my time will have had a meaning and impact. Yes, it's very true. And to that point of people wondering, well, I don't have the resources or the means to find a mentor. There are, there are a lot of people out there like you, Renee, who it's not something that you charge for. It's more of this bond that you're creating with somebody that you really believe in, mm-hmm. that you are bringing to the table a lot of meaning, a lot of impact that they wouldn't have otherwise had. And you're not just doing it for them, but you're doing it for you because it allows you to blossom as a person as well to be able to share this knowledge that you've acquired. And I would say like my first mentor ever, at least like that I consider a mentor was Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee died way before I was even born. And it's interesting for those of you who can see the podcast visually, I don't know if this goes on video, but I've had this book, Mm -hmm. the Tao of Jeet Kune Do since I was 10. I've had this book 18 years and I never understood it at that age, nor did I read it. (laughs) But recently I cracked this thing open and there's some wisdom that has really helped me significantly in this. So if you're not able to find a mentor, it's like Renee was saying, you know, there's a millennia of mentorship in books. And that's something that you can always find some answers in, regardless of where you're at right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there are people who, you know, have an aversion to reading and, you know, there's audio books available to them. But either way, I think that people have to, you know, one, one common thing that I find with a lot of folks who are trying to, you know, always pursue the success or whatever it is that they want is that, you know, they're not, a, a lot of people, unfortunately, aren't willing to take the responsibility of growing through the discomfort that mm-hmm. they have to go through in order to achieve what it is they want. They want to outsource that discomfort to somebody else and have them hand it back to them. And that's just not the way it works. The world just doesn't work that way. Correct. And I think there's times to do that, but it's not with everything. I mean, there are things that if it's uncomfortable, it may literally be that that's just not where your time is best spent in order to achieve a certain outcome for your business, for instance. But with a lot of things, if we're just avoiding dealing with our own stuff yeah, versus just a skill set that you're not well versed in, that's a totally different story. Yeah. We got to deal with our stuff. <laughs> if, if you want to obviously get better, but you refuse to read, you refuse to listen to audiobooks, you refuse to listen or watch YouTube videos on this type of topic or talk to anybody for that matter, then the way I see that is that you're not yet ready to commit yeah. to that particular change. So Victor, you know, whether it's from your podcast and Stoic, your website, your social media channels, what's the most interesting thing 
that we would learn about you or could learn about you now that we can't learn from those channels or hearing your bio, et cetera? Or what's one of your quirk that, you know, most people (laughs) wouldn't find in those areas? So what you would not find in those areas is that I am a huge fan of karaoke. (laughs) It's like one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) What's your favorite song to sing? Man, I have two. I have two that I usually open with no matter where I go because they're always a hit. Either A Thousand Miles by Vanessa Carlton. By the way, I don't sing manly songs in karaoke. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of my not taking it very seriously notion towards it. Or Under the Sea from Little Mermaid. Those are my two jams. Nobody would ever (laughs) learn that from any of my channels. But, But yeah, that's normally what I do. That's awesome. I remember, yeah, I used to be super scared to do it. And then one day I just, I did it. And then from then on, I just kind of fell in love with the whole putting yourself on the line like that. Cause I'm not like a singer by any stretch, (laughs) but just being able to have fun with those experiences. And especially if somebody, you know, if you're ever working on your public speaking, this is a really good technique, karaoke. If you can sing a song in front of a bunch of people and have fun with it, then you'll have no problem talking about something that you're really good at on stage. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) All right, Victor, as we're closing up here, I'd like to know what's the most important thing you've learned about being an entrepreneur and how has it shaped your personal and professional life? I'd say the most important thing I've learned about being an entrepreneur is the idea that when you become an entrepreneur, you must decide that you are living a life where you're not going to be traveling on pre-established paths and you must take ownership of that and you must live at the cause of that, not at the effect. And what I mean by that is when you live at the cause, you're taking full responsibility for the results that you get in your life. When you're living at the effect, you're indulging in the stories and excuses of why you're not getting to where you want to get instead of putting your energy towards doing that. So there are people in this world who would prefer to travel on established paths And that's fine. There are areas of my life where I prefer to travel on established paths rather than carving mine. But when it comes to business, I choose to carve my own path and pave the way. And it's not an easy road, but it is a road that if you're going to commit to it, you must commit to it fully and enjoy the process, fall in love with the process, make the process itself your goal and fall in love with that path instead of just fixating on the ultimate result. Yeah, I got, you know, Victor, I got to tell you, this entire conversation with you has been pure gold. I think that my listeners will have gotten a lot of value from it. Where can they connect with you online? Um, so you can connect with me on Facebook at Zen Stoic. That's the page. I also have a free group on Facebook where I go more into depth. And we're going to be starting a Zen Stoic book club on the Zen Stoic Dojo, which is my free group. Where basically we're going to be going through different Zen Stoic texts. I'm going to be taking people into my journey of how I learn all these things and curate them by doing a public book club within that free group. Um, you can also connect me on Instagram at Zen Stoic underscore V or on LinkedIn at Victor Pierantoni. I also have a Zen Stoic page on LinkedIn. So these are all the places where you might be able to find me. Great, and we'll make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. Uh, Victor, again, it's been a tremendous pleasure having you here today with us. Thank you for joining us on Inner Spartan Unleashed. It's been a great pleasure. Oh, it's been amazing, man. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was a lot of fun. Victor is a smart and engaging guy. I'm sure his clients get a lot of value from working with him. If you'd like to hear more from the both of us, we pick up our conversation on his podcast, The Zen Stoic, which was released last Friday. Just search for The Zen Stoic Podcast. I'll also put a link in the show notes of this show, which you could find on innerspartanunleashed.com. 
do me a favor. If you like this episode, please rate the show, comment and subscribe to this podcast and make sure to share this show with your like-minded family and friends and help spread the kind of work that we're doing here. That really helps me out. All right. I will see you next week on Inner Spartan Unleashed. <laughs>